0: Well, this morning we are in our series in 1 Corinthians, come now to chapter 10, and we're looking at the refreshing of our race. More specifically, knowing how others ran their race teaches us how to run our race. So we're going to be looking at, uh, Paul's going to give some Old Testament examples of how people have run their race, and I'll let you in on a little secret It's 100% failure, okay? And it's an example so that we don't fail in the running of our race, that we're successful in the running of the race that Jesus Christ has marked out for us. Now, it's important that we know how other people ran their race because it really does help us run ours. Um, It was in 1954 that the first four minute mile was run by Roger Bannister. And by the way, that works out to 15 miles an hour. Just try to go 15 miles an hour and think about doing that for an hour. That's a, that's a pretty amazing thing. In fact, there were articles that were written before he did this that said, it is a physical impossibility that no, the human body could not do a four-minute mile. Now, as of April 2021, which is the last I have statistics for, 1,664 athletes have broken the four-minute mile. Because one guy did it, a whole bunch of people in succession could continue. So how other people ran their race can teach us how to run our race. Now, I happen to be partial to swimming because all three of my boys were swimmers and uh, one played water polo at Clemson and another one swam in college as well. So I went to, I don't know, over 20 years of swim meets. Um, In 1924, Johnny Weissmuller of the Tarzan fame, he won the gold medal in the 100-meter freestyle in 59 seconds, 59 seconds. Did you know that at our own community's sectional swim meet this year, IHSA boys sectional, 10 swimmers at our local community sectional bettered that time when you convert it to yards. How other people have run their race can help us in the running of our race. Well, that's the first introduction to the sermon. (laughs) Here's the second one. Sometimes when we come to church to hear the preaching of the word, what we are tempted to do is to sit and wait until we get some word of blessing okay, that's a good thought, I think I'll hang on to that one. Now that's not wrong to get a devotional thought out of a sermon. But I want to suggest to you that you dive more deeply than that. The reason is I read a disturbing article this past week that talked about biblical illiteracy and that one of the, as we pastors discussed it, uh, we discussed the article via an email, shared email, is this idea that uh, we're only reading the Bible in just little tiny snippets to where we get some, you know, like precious moments inspiration, and we don't think about how everything fits together and what the Bible's saying, and we don't know the story of the Bible and what's going on, and so I just want to say that the method of my preaching is something that I want you to imitate in your own study of scripture. That you don't just wait until you get a wonderful God thought, though I hope you do get wonderful God thoughts, but that you follow the methodology here of working your way through the text and seeing repeated themes and ways in which God is at work, and, and, so, and the reason I say this is, we're gonna dive into some Old Testament stories here, and you may or may not be familiar with them, but what I'm trying to do in this message isn't just tell you the story of 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13. I'm trying to help you see how to study the Scriptures. So that when you come to the Bible on your own, which I hope you do, <laughs> it will be more than just, oh, here's a nice little snippet of inspiration, but that you're thinking about how the parts fit into the whole and how the whole can inform the parts. Um, with that in mind, let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock... Was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Please have a seat. Let me set the context. The Corinthians had asked some questions to Paul that Paul answers in this letter. And the way we identify the questions that they ask is this repeated phrase through 1 Corinthians, the phrase is, now concerning. You see it back at chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Paul is going to answer that… answers that question in chapter 8 by saying that the why of whether you eat food offered to idols is way more important than the what… You should experience your freedom in Christ, but if it would cause a weaker brother to stumble, then don't eat food offered to idols if it's gonna promote idol worship in your brother's heart. There's a lesson for us there, isn't there? As we can get very attached to methods rather than being attached to principles and knowing that the methods are gonna change. So then in chapter nine, Paul describes Uh, the privileges and responsibilities, and then the sacrifice and discipline of Christian leadership. So it's all about Christian leadership in chapter 9. He concludes chapter 9 with this appeal to run our race of the Christian life in a way to win the prize. Run that you may obtain the prize, chapter 9, verse 24. So... Chapter 10 opens with more on this theme of running our race, only this time it's the lessons that we can gain from prior runners. So whether it's food offered to idols or the privileges that Paul says belong to a Christian leader and then not taking those privileges but rather sacrificing them for a bigger cause, the issue Is not about the what as as much as it is about the why, that we may run our race to the finish. And there is a foolishness of thinking that the race is over when it is not. So, verses 1 through 5: running to win the prize requires knowledge that's gained by studying other runners. In verse 1, he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers. We want you to know the Old Testament, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. This is a description in the history of Israel. And you might say to me, well, wait a minute, wasn't most of the Corinthian church Gentile? Yes. And yet Paul refers to the Old Testament people as our fathers. Why? Because there is a continuity from Israel to the church, not that the church replaces Israel, but that the lessons learned from Israel should be learned by the church in the running of our races. So, under the cloud, that's a pillar of cloud that led the Israelites, all passed through the sea, that is that great Red Sea experience where they were rescued from the Egyptian army. He now gives two analogies. Paul gives two examples of these prior races run. The first in chapter 2, or chapter 10, verse 2, is the Exodus experience, which illustrates salvation and the Christian life. He says, all were under the cloud… Cloud led them. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The moment of salvation for Israel was in Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31. They were lost. They were doomed. The Egyptian army had them trapped. And then God parted the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry ground. When they got all across... The Egyptian army chases them and the sea closes up over them and the Egyptian army is destroyed. And the description of summary in chapter 14 of Exodus, verses 30 and 31 is this, thus the Lord, and these words are chosen carefully, thus the Lord saved Israel, salvation. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So, the people feared the Lord. That is, they're in worship. They recognized who God was and they acted on it. And they believed in the Lord. There's salvation by grace through faith. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The response of faith. All passed under the cloud that led them. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. That is, in this immersive experience, we see illustrated salvation. Just like believers' baptism illustrates the great salvation of our God in Christ. We aren't saved by our baptism, but baptism is a picture of it, right? We're dunked in the water to show we're dead in our sins, we're raised to new life, it's an illustration, not the act of salvation, but the illustration of it. And in the same way, this moment in Israel's history is this immersive experience illustrating the great salvation of God. That's the first analogy. The second one is in verses three and four. All ate the same spiritual food all drank the same spiritual drink. This is a reference to Exodus 16 and 17. In Exodus 16, the people, guess what, complain. We don't have anything to eat. We want food. Moses, get us food to eat. (laughs) And so Moses cries out to God and down falls this stuff from heaven. And the people look up, and in Hebrew, this is what they say as they see this stuff falling down. They look up and they go, Mana. That means, what is it? That's what the word manna means. It means, what is it? <laughs> and what is it fell, and it was food for them to eat. And so, six days out of seven, a miracle happened throughout their 40 year journey in the wilderness. Every day, of the week except the Sabbath when the day before they got twice as much as they needed. So that was a miracle too. So we could say every day of the week they got a miracle. They all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. This is a reference to Exodus 17, the very next chapter. The people complain because they don't have water. And I've walked around in that area enough to know it doesn't take very long to start complaining about a lack of water. In fact, one time I took a group in this area and um, we're walking along and all of a sudden people are getting a little snippy and snappy, you know. They're starting to snip and snap at each other. When are we going to be done? Where's the bus? Like the bus is this glorious thing that you've paid these thousands of dollars to go to, right? <laughs> Doesn't take long. And, and, and here at that moment, God tells Moses, hit the rock, and he hits the rock, and it gushes forth water. Again, a miracle. They all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. In fact, Israel's salvation is illustrated by manna and water from a rock, and it's actually accomplished by the Messiah. Do you see it there at the end of verse 4? That spiritual rock that followed him, and the rock was Christ. Not some physical rock. There's a rock that was Jesus, the Messiah. So he's drawing an illustrative conclusion to the Christian life. We walk through our Christian life complaining, God supplies, we complain, God supplies, and who is it that's doing the supplying all along? It's Jesus. Now, how much the average Israelite understood that, I don't know, but I do know Moses understood it. Moses understood that it was Jesus Christ that he was serving, And in order to prove that to you, I'm gonna take you on a little journey through the New Testament now to show you how Moses had a very good understanding of Jesus as Messiah. The first one is in Luke 9, 29, the transfiguration. Jesus is praying and the appearance of his face is altered and his clothing becomes dazzling white and two men are talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Moses understood who Jesus was and what he was doing and where he was gonna go, at least by the time he arrived in heaven, right? You might say, well, yeah, he got all that knowledge up in heaven after he died. Oh, contraire, dear brother and sister. Go to Luke 24, verse 26. And Jesus is risen from the dead and he's walking with two disciples who don't recognize Jesus. And Jesus is explaining to them, was it not necessary that the Christ, same word, the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus taught, that Moses understood that Moses was serving Christ. How about Philip's testimony in John chapter one, verse 44? Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. How about Jesus teaching, John chapter three, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Or Jesus' teaching in John 5, 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. I don't know how much the Israelites understood. Moses understood what he was doing, he's serving Christ. Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 3. How about Paul's preaching? Acts 26, verse 21. Paul says, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the nations. Two more. Paul's preaching, Acts 28, when they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And lastly, it is indeed the proclamation of heaven that Moses understood that he was serving Jesus Christ. Revelation 15, verse two, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come to you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You see, it may be unclear to us how much the average Israelite was aware of this. I think they were probably more aware than we would expect but the testimony of the New Testament is universal and compelling. Moses taught and understood that he was serving Christ, not some physical rock that he was hitting. Now there's an important thing to note here. As I mentioned, Israel experienced the miraculous on a daily basis. Can you imagine what it'd been like to have experienced a miracle every day? There's a cloud that shows you where to go. And at night, it's a pillar of fire that just shows up and shows you where to go. Every day, you are fed by amazingly nutritious stuff that falls down from heaven that sustained a people for over, for 40 years. Israel experienced the miraculous on a daily basis. So here's the lesson. Experiencing God's miracles is not a test of spiritual maturity. You are not identified in your spiritual maturity by how many miracles you experience. Miracles are just gifts of grace. You experience them, it doesn't show that you're more mature, doesn't show that you've got more faith, doesn't prove anything. That's not the test of spiritual maturity. The mark of Christian maturity, as we will see momentarily, is overcoming temptation to sin, not the experiencing of miracles. Now, all of us like experiencing miracles, but that's not the test of our spiritual maturity. Verse five is one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You see, this is why Paul says in verse 27 of chapter 9, I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Most of Israel lost the race. Did you know that we will not see most of Israel in heaven? Most of them After experiencing daily miracle for 40 years, they lost the race. The possibility of having run the wrong race is a reality. And again, this is not about the security of the believer. This is about the assurance of the believer. If we think that we can live any way we want to and be assured of our salvation, we have another thing coming The stark reality is that one of the reasons for lack of assurance of our salvation is that we never were truly saved in the first place. Merely knowing the plan of salvation does not make one a true believer. And just a brief survey of 1 John helps us understand that. Let me just share a few verses with you from 1 John. 1 John 1, six: if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Chapter 2 verse 4, whoever says, I know Him but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Chapter 2, verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And then chapter, there's more, but chapter 2, verse 28 is the one I'll finish with. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Running to win the prize requires knowledge that is gained by looking at other runners' races. And Israel failed in their race. And Paul says, look at their example and run a different race. So let's look at verses 6 through 13. Running to win the prize requires remembering the lessons of previous races. What specifically are the lessons we should learn from Israel? Well, verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You see, when we remember the examples of Israel, it leads to the prevention of the same errors. We won't make the same mistakes they make. And the main one is to not set our hearts on evil. The desire of evil is the worst intention of our hearts. Jeremiah says, "'The heart is deceitful above all things "'and desperately wicked. "'Who can know it?' And if you think that your heart "'is somehow immune from that infection,' you are of all people the most deceived. We must look at their examples seriously so that we can avoid the errors that they have made. So now Paul in verses seven through 10 describes four specific ways that our hearts can get misdirected to desire evil. And I say, "I, I don't really think I desire evil. Well, let's look at these and see if any of these might ring a bell with you. Verse 7, the first one, is idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Idolatry is the passion for someone or something other than God or in addition to God. And here, Paul is making reference to Exodus 32, the circumstance of the golden calf, Remember Moses is up on Mount Sinai and Aaron's there and they're like Moses is delaying, Aaron, you gotta make us gods that we can worship. And so he asked for gold and and I love his excuse later. He says, I threw in this gold and out came this calf. <laughs> anyway, they get this golden calf and he says, This is the God who led you out of Egypt. He's got right theology but calling it the wrong thing. That's idolatry and it sends people to hell. Making something other than the true God sacred to our hearts is idolatry and it will send us to hell. You might say, well, I don't have any idols. I don't have a golden calf at home. We have idols of the heart. Let me ask a series of questions. What are you preoccupied with? What is the first thing on your mind in the morning and the last thing on your mind at night? How would you answer this question? If only, and fill in the blank, then I would be happy, fulfilled, and secure. What is it that I want to preserve or avoid at all costs? Where is it that I put my trust? What do I fear? Am I afraid of people and what they think of me rather than my joy at telling the good news of Jesus Christ to others? When a certain desire is not met, do I feel frustration, anxiety, resentment, bitterness, anger, or depression? You see, idolatry falls into all kinds of categories, and it extends way farther than we imagine improper desires for physical pleasure, pride in the desire to be right, the love of money or material possessions, the fear of people and what they could do to us, and it even extends to good things that we want too much. Paul says... These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Verse eight is the second category, sexual immorality. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, it's true that Israel had that problem more than once. Once was in the golden calf thing in Exodus 32, but Paul's making a specific reference here to Numbers 25, where there was a prophet by the name of Balaam, and God made it so that no matter what Balaam said, he was always blessing Israel. And he didn't want to bless Israel because he was getting paid by the king of Moab to curse Israel. And so he couldn't figure out how to do that, and his donkey actually talks to him. You know, there's just all kinds of crazy things that are going on in this episode. But Balaam figures out, I know how to fool Israel. Tells the king of Moab, what you do is you put some Moabite women around him and they're going to sin and it's all going to be great for you. And sure enough, Israel falls like fools into that trap of sexual immorality. And today, of course, that, that phrase fits a thousand different categories and we as a culture have determined in our hearts that we will worship at the God of sex without consequence We will worship at that that altar. And sadly, in the church of Jesus Christ, our answer is either to be so prudish that we won't even talk about it, or to fail to recognize our own hearts and the drivenness of our souls to desire evil. We pretend. Until all of a sudden we see someone fall into sexual immorality and we go, oh, I'm shocked. Second category, sexual immorality. Third, verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is the description in Numbers chapter 21 of the snakes uh, coming and coming. Uh, biting the Israelites and killing them. Uh, Do you know the context of it though? The context is that Israel spoke against God and spoke against Moses and they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food, this miraculous provision that God had made for them. Every day they go, we hate it. We won't, we're not gonna put up with it. The the grumbling, the testing of Christ, his supply was not enough for them. And so God sent snakes. Fiery serpents, it's described in Numbers 21, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The last one in verse 10 is grumbling, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is in Numbers 16 and 17, a chafing against authority. This was Korah's rebellion, attributing motives of pride in Moses. Now, consider that God called Moses the meekest man who ever lived. And what were the people doing? they were taking the very thing that was Moses' greatest quality and accusing him of exactly the opposite. They said, what's so special about you, Moses? All the congregation are holy. We're just as important as you are, like Moses ever said that they weren't, accusing Moses of financial impropriety, bad motives, absolutely baseless charges that were more related to how they themselves would act if they were in Moses' shoes. So what they don't know, they fill in with innuendo and accusation, grumble as some of them did. And notice the description, the ground opened up and they went alive down into hell, destroyed by the destroyer. Those are the four categories, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, And grumbling. We see their examples in order that we might not desire evil as they did. Running to win the prize requires remembering the lessons of previous races. Now, verses 11 through 13, remembering these lessons awakens us to this reality. Like it or not, We are in the race. You might say, can I just not run? Nope. (laughs) Not an option. You are in a race. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you are in the race of life. It's not an option. The very fact of your existence means you're in the race. But look at verse 11. It says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down, So, the preserved word of God for our instruction, therefore, us who are believers in Jesus, on whom the end of the ages has come, we have the privilege of living at the very end of the age. The next great thing that's happening is going to usher in the kingdom of God. What a blessing, what a privilege to run our race at this moment in time. If we're thinking, oh man, if only the things weren't so bad. Listen. Jesus promised things are going to get horrible before the end comes. (laughs) So as they get horrible, what should we do? Look up, our redemption is drawing near, dear brother and sister. On whom the end of the ages has come. Don't miss out on your race. Don't get comfortable. Don't think, well, I've run for a long time. It's time for me to relax now. Don't think that being present in God's community is an automatic qualifier for the promised land. Just because you are here does not mean that you are going to heaven. You must repent of your sin and turn to Christ, trusting Him. Don't think that you can do this on your own either. There's no such thing as the private individual Christian, we are called into community. Now, it's easy to get discouraged and worried about these things. I know I do, especially when our consciences are tender. We experience the awareness of the conviction of our sin and we think, I'm hopeless. (laughs) I can never have victory. Dear brother and sister, I have a good word for you. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Others have had the same race challenges as you have had. Now we all have different temptations of various kinds. Some are more tempting to us than they are to others and temptations of others are not all that tempting to us. Sometimes we look at a person and we go, why why would you be tempted by that? We look at things that way but the fact is all temptation is of a category that is common. You cannot say, nobody has ever gone through what I am going through. God has designed His world that way in the area of temptation, that you are not alone. You are not alone. Secondly, verse 13, God is faithful. Faithful. Oh, what a beautiful three words. God is faithful. He's the same God who has helped others to win their race and he's there to help you win yours. It's not in your own strength that you win. It is only by the power of God and he is faithful. God has a limiter on the race and on the race obstacles. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You might think that it's beyond your ability. Oh, yeah. I've been there. But it's not. Because God's faithfulness to his own means that he will have a limiter on the race and on the race obstacles exactly suited for you in your race. So don't ever think, well, I can't help it. I have to sin. No, God has a limiter on those obstacles. Perhaps the most important part of the verse is the next one. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. God provides a way to overcome the obstacles that are in our race quite often in people's Christian experiences when they're defeated by habitual sin, they tend to look at the sin so much and they think, I gotta look at this sin and I gotta deal with it. And my counsel to them is stop looking at your sin and look to Christ. Look at him. (laughs) And see him for who he is and ask him for the way of escape. Ask him for his help, his power in your life. God provides a way to overcome race obstacles. And then this last word, that you may be able to endure it. The way that God gives us in overcoming temptation is not by eliminating the temptation from our lives. Some of us may have faced temptations when we were 13 or 14, and here we are, 80 or 85 years old, and we're facing the same temptations. We go, why haven't I grown at all? No, no, no. No definition of whether you've grown or not. It just means God doesn't promise that he takes away temptation. What he promises is that you can stand up under the temptation. There is victory for us if we will take hold of it and so my appeal to you brothers and sisters is to run your race to the finish and there's foolishness in thinking that the race is over before it's over we can get cocky as Christians thinking, you know I got my life pretty well settled I've got where I want to live how I want to do it and my kids and everything you know I've got it all kind of worked out here and we start celebrating that's the moment when Satan is going to grab a hold of you. I got a little video to share with you to show you how important it is not to celebrate too soon. Take my word for it. There's a moral to this. Yeah, maybe next time, wait that extra second before celebrating. A college track star learned the dangers of premature celebration. A runner from the University of Oregon thought he had the race locked up, started waving, pumping up the crowd. And he was passed by a runner from the University of Washington in the final seconds, not just the final seconds, the difference with a tenth of a second. The University of Washington wins. Yeah, just a bit of a disappointment there. Yeah, just a real disappointment there. No obstacle or temptation is impossible to overcome. God will provide a way. But run all the way to the tape, brothers and sisters. Keep charging on for Christ and his kingdom. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask that you would do this work of grace in us. Where there are temptations that we feel are too great, that we would recognize that you're faithful. You won't let us be tempted beyond our ability, but with the temptation, you provide a way of escape so that we can hold up under it that we're able to endure it, help us to learn the lessons of Israel, to not desire evil, forgive us of our idolatry, our sexual immorality, our putting Christ to the test, and yes, of our grumbling, that we may be children of light heralding forth this good news to a hurting world. Do that work of grace in us and where there are people who are satisfied and secured in their salvation that do not possess us, possess it, awaken them to the reality of their need for Christ. To trust him, to forgive, ask him to forgive them, to repent and to run to the cross. Where there's a Christian brother or sister who feels overwhelmed by the burden of their sin, help them to look to Christ And help us not to celebrate too soon that we would run in such a way to win the prize. In Jesus' name, amen.